This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. With that, I had to call the radio and tell the guys, you know, I'm getting ready to jump. Uh, if something happens to me, please tell Colleen, Eric, and Tara I love them. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit of pilots in challenging situations and we learn the skills and the knowledge they use to fly out of them. I'm Richard McSpadden. My co-host is Kristen Bodner. Kristen, who are we going to fly with today? Hey, Richard. Our guest today is Sean D. Tucker. Sean is joining us today via Skype. Sean has been flying air shows worldwide since the mid-1970s. He's logged more than 1,275 performances at more than 525 air shows with 135 million fans in attendance. Sean is an inductee of the National Aviation Hall of Fame as well as the International Aviation Air and Space Hall of Fame. A neat fact about Sean, more than half of his maneuvers have never been duplicated by another aerobatic pilot. Please welcome Sean to the show. Sean, thanks for joining us. It's, it's, it's been a while since I've flown with you, but I've seen you recently with your Bob Hoover Award, which is fantastic, the, the first awardee uh, after Bob Hoover. So thanks for joining us. It is absolutely, boss, my pleasure to be here talking about what I love doing the most, and that's called flying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Well, I know out of your 20,000 plus flight hours and, and the many aerobatic and air shows uh, routines that you've done, you must have several stories to choose from. Is there anyone in particular that stands out that you'd like to talk to our audience about today? Well, probably my most significant emergency uh, was about 11 years ago, and I'd certainly like to talk about that because I thought I was doing everything correctly in my career. My career was just on fire. My flying was on fire. My maintenance crew was on fire. And there I was. Hmm, interesting. So, so walk <laughs> us through it, if, if you don't mind, Sean. What, what happened? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's going to take me a minute to compose myself because um, when you go through a significant milestone in your life, that affects you to your core. Um, it's pretty emotional. You know, flying to me is a gift, a privilege, but it's in my line of work, it's also very dangerous. And I try to at all times mitigate the risk so 
I can be successful. Um, started the air show season 11 years ago. I'm on my way to my second show of the year and my completely honest, unexpected beyond my wildest dreams. I prepare and train to, for excellence uh, and execution. I practice a hundred times before I step into the arena for the first show of the season. I just completed my first show of the season. I was in Riverside, California on my way to sun and fun while I'm flying to sun and fun. I actually practice in route. I practice in Dallas stopped in uh, a friend's place, uh, Cachada, Louisiana. I had an aerobatic box stopped there to practice uh, because it's, for me, it's important. It's just important to train it, it, it to give me a, a level of confidence when I'm in the arena I'm the best I can be and I mitigate all risk. So it's uh, 9.30 in the morning, beautiful day, just finished the first figure, uh, but uh, 10 snap rolls on the down line, zooming down to um, 225 miles an hour, 10 feet above, above the runway, seven and a half G pull going into the next figure. And I hear this loud bam in the pull I lost total elevator control completely, and my airplane pitches up and then pitches down, and momentarily I was so sensory overloaded that everything went black. I mean, all the senses. I'm so in tune with this flying machine. I knew I was in significant peril, and I thought I was going to die right at that moment. Um, and it, that moment might have been that moment might have been a second, or it might have been a nanosecond, but. I was so overloaded. I, it was, everything went black trying to get all the information I could. Yeah. So interesting, Sean, if I can sort of summarize then as people picture in their mind, what's happened, you, you, when, when you say the downline, you've been pointing pretty much straight down at the ground and you go to execute, uh, you, you pull out of that and you're flying along at about 10 feet above the runway, gaining your speed for your next maneuver. And as you go into a seven and a half G pull into that maneuver, so you got the nose coming up. Suddenly, you hear this loud bang, and things kind of go black, right? Is that is that basically? It, it was a bang. It was an explosion. It, it's really hard to, hard to explain. I instantly knew what failed in my aircraft. Huh. I instantly knew. I I so know this flying machine. I instantly knew where it broke, and it was um, the the um, we fly with a stick, not a yoke, and the to control the elevators and the ailerons is with the stick and there's a rod end there's a rod end that connects the the pieces together to get to the elevator to the mechanism and one of the rod ends failed it shattered and so now i have no elevator control i have aileron control but the if you if you ever take a look at my flying machine it's it's the control surfaces are so huge mm -hmm. Uh, it's almost like a model airplane uh, control surfaces. They're so huge and so powerful. This airplane just did this huge pitch up well past the 90 and then immediately pitched down. Hmm. The good news by that time when it pitched down, I had probably gained an elevation of five, 600 feet. And now I'm looking at the ground. There's no elevator control and it's going down. What I do still have at my disposal on the side is a mechanism that for my uh, elevator trim tap. Hmm. 
And the trim tab, I pulled the trim tab all the way back up, and it, the airplane slowly, I mean so slowly, started climbing again. And then it had climbed, and then it had pitched down again. And I was trying to work the trim tab to get the air, keep the airplane flying. And how about the power, Sean? What, what were you doing with the power? Were you, were you in idle as you're headed towards the ground at that point, or...? Oh, no, 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 no. Um, it's, I, I kept the power where it was um, because I wanted, I wanted um, some airflow over the surfaces. I might, have, I might have come off a little bit, but remember now, I, my hand's on the throttle and my hand's on the elevator on the trim. My right hand is on the stick trying to utilize my ailerons. I have aileron control and I have rudder control. But this pitching motion, this slow motion pitching motion, this thing is porpoising through the sky, and the amplitudes are starting to slow down. I'm going through a thousand feet. I said, "Okay, I'm not going to die right now. Hmm. Okay, I might have an opportunity to save this. I have about twelve gallons of gas in the airplane, which is you know twenty minutes or so okay. of fuel." Um, it was an air show load, and I got on the radio of the guys, and I said, I have a significant problem. Um, the, uh, the staff on the ground, they got another chase airplane to try to help me out. They called emergency services, and what I'm trying to think is I've already just been, I've already just been prepaid over a million dollars to get the team going for the season for my sponsorship. I said, if I bail out of this airplane, I'm going to get fired. Hmm. And besides that, I love this flying machine. I'd been with this girl for almost 12 years, um, you know, thousands of flights with her. Uh, we overhauled her every year. She's always in just pristine shape. And I love this girl. I love this flying machine. I didn't want to bail because I didn't want to destroy the flying machine. I didn't want to bail because I didn't want to lose my career. And I had to make a determination if I could save this. And, and the airplane because of the amplitudes are starting to slow down, I was able to get it above a thousand feet and try to figure out how, how to crash land it without, without um, mortally injuring myself, maybe damaging the airplane, but crash landing it. I had no, there, I knew there wasn't going to be a, a possible way not to damage the airplane. And, and if I could just control the amplitudes, I could use power to come in and, and get her close to the ground and save the airplane, maybe tear the gear off, but not mortally injure myself. It was not possible. Uh, the airplane, the airplane was dead in the sky. And it just took me a while to realize I got to let her go. I have to let her go. Um, she would come close to a stall. I would save it and then get her flying again. And then she'd pull up and get close to a stall. And I would save it because if I go into a stall on a spin at that altitude, I'm in, I'm in significant danger as well. So I started yeah. climbing her up, trying to figure out, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. I got, I, I have to make the decision to jump. Uh, and then where I'm going to put the airplane. We got, got to, we called night one, my, my ground personnel called nine one one. We closed some roads um, we got that done. They directed me across the river, the Red River uh, in Louisiana, across the river to a farmer's field. Then I started planning the evacuation of the aircraft. Hmm. So that was a, a pretty um, 
long period of time where you were able to go through a lot of preparation, it sounds like. But, I mean, it, it probably happened a lot quicker than it seemed to you. Um, it was a long time. It, it, was, it was really a long time. It was, I've had many emergencies in my career. Um, this was a long emergency, and it was the most significant ones because I had to ask a lot of questions. Um, I had to make decisions that, you know, normally in an emergency, if you bail out of an airplane, you're out, it's gone. But this one, I, I had to make decisions, rational decisions in an emergency, and it, it, it really significantly affected me. Um, I climbed the airplane all the way up to 8,500 feet and looked down. I said, you know what? That's not going to work. Um, that's not going to work because I can't guarantee I could, the airplane's going to crash where I want it to crash. I so knew this airplane. I knew exactly what it was going to do. I knew exactly what it was going to do when I bailed out. I knew that it was going to make a left turn, and I envisioned where I wanted to go. So I brought it down to 5,500 feet to to leave the airplane. But what's really interesting when you when, when you have a long emergency, you start asking yourself a lot of questions. And one thing I got to tell you, there's no atheist in a disabled airplane. <laughs> 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 one thing I got to tell you, and and what what also really profoundly affected me is, you know, I'm going to jump out of this airplane to save my life, but that doesn't mean it's a guaranteed that I'm going to live. And so I said Besides praying and become very clear in my mind with that, I had to call on the radio and tell the guys, you know, I'm getting ready to jump. Uh, if something happens to me, please tell Colleen, Mary, and Tara I love them. Mm. It's my wife and kids. Mm. And that's profound when you say that. Uh, that's very profound yeah. because you don't know. But what happened after that, after those processes, praying to all the gods, all of them, <laughs> for help and guidance, and then saying, potentially saying goodbye to your family, I became very clear, very clear and very, very in the moment mm. with no regrets whatsoever of what I was going to do, no fear whatsoever with what I was going to do. And so that helped me in the next scenario because this was not, um, this was not, um, a, a made-for-TV movie where there's going to be a success. <laughs> I right. didn't. I was not the superhero that jumped out of this airplane cleanly and got away, and everything was righteous. I thought I did everything right. I, you know, there's like a gallon and a half of gas left, so I wasn't worried about fire. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I. Uh, released the canopy. The airplane was so well made. The canopy didn't release. And, and when you, when you release the canopy, you got to duck your head so it doesn't hit you in the head. Well, it didn't work. So I had to push the canopy away and my head came up and of course the canopy hits me in the head. Thank God I was wearing a helmet or it would have probably knocked me unconscious. So that was my first clue. Maybe this isn't made for TV. Mm. Um, <laughs> I got switches off, seatbelts done, canopy's gone. It's time to go. I got the airplane slowed down and I go to hop out. What I failed to do is um, the left shoulder harness did not, um, was still kind of hanging on my shoulder. And, and so instead of diving away from the airplane, I kind of fell out of the side of the airplane and it 
and I, I got caught up in my tail brace uh, wires that were that connect to the uh, horizontal and vertical stabilizers, and I got stuck inside of there as the airplane goes into the dive. Oh wow, wow! But but because because I was so clear and in the moment, I didn't panic. I undid myself from that and pushed that airplane like you'd push a log on a river and it just flew away from me. And when it flew away from me, I immediately started slowing down because a human body can only at terminal velocity can go, can only go 120 miles an hour. And that airplane, because I was stuck next to it and connected to it and a down spiral, the airplane was probably doing 220, 230, but I slowed down immediately, saw her go towards the ground, got stable, pulled my ripcord, and heard the crash hmm. and landed right next to that airplane. And I laid, I laid in that field going, okay, okay. This is a new chapter in my life. Hmm. Yeah. I'm going to lose my sponsorship. Um, there's going to be 10 unemployed team members and I'm going to start over. And this is what I, that's what I thought besides thanking God that I'm alive. Yeah. <laughs> I started yeah. worrying about, okay, my career. The first phone call I get is from Larry Ellison, chairman of Oracle. He says, thank God you're alive. I'm glad things are great. He says, keep the money. Oh. Wow. Keep the money. I'm, I'm sponsoring you for the rest of the year. If you don't want to fly anymore this year, you don't have to. I'm paying you the full sponsorship. And I'm sponsoring you for next year if you decide to fly. Wow. Wow. Um, okay. So then I go to the team. I said, okay, we're working. <laughs> <laughs> we're working. <laughs> and we still have a contract to fulfill with Columbia Aircraft because that was the first year I was demonstrating, doing a Bob Hoover-like demonstration and the, the utility category of the Columbia to to – uh, I did, did loops and rolls and gentleman aerobatics in the airplane. Mm. And it was, that was my first, Sun Fun was going to be my first performance in the Columbia. I took that day off, the rest of the day off. Um, then I had to get in the Columbia to see if I still had the nerve to do this. Mm. And I told my team that I don't know if I have the nerve. Yeah. And, and if I don't have the nerve, I'm not going to perform. Because I, I, I learned such milestones of lessons from this this accident this near tragedy that i can be honest with my emotions and i wasn't afraid to say i don't know if i have the nerve and and that was a big step in my life to acknowledge that and then to move forward with my career yeah wow what an experience I, I I can't imagine. So first of all, I know just from watching you fly over many years and, and our friendship over many years that you are just um, a fanatic about preparation and pre-flight of your airplane and and that sort of thing. So you know you 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 can and you should do all that preparation and yet you're, there's still you know the element of the unknown that you're going to be that you're going to be faced with. And for most of us, it won't be as critical as what you faced. But certainly there was there a piece in there even right when it happened that you just had a hard time believing that something was happening or I, I in, in my entire career I, I strive to not leave one stone unturned to for to be excellent 
and, and my fly-in, but also in terms of my maintenance of my aircraft. Mm-hmm. The reason this airplane failed is because I overhauled it that winter, and I had a part that failed at 55% of its rated value. Okay? Well, <laughs> That's why the, I'm the only person in the country that overhauls, completely overhauls their airplane every single year with new hardware, a completely overhauled motor. We inspect, we take the fabric off that airplane, we inspect we, the spars, we inspect, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's a wood wing, which wood wood spars, mm-hmm. uh, wood ribs. It's fabric covered. We have uh, titanium gear. We have carbon fibers. It's a fusion of of all the technologies I wanted in an airplane. It failed because of a brand new part. If I hadn't overhauled that airplane, it wouldn't have failed. So luck comes with the one most prepared. But even that being said, these these are just pieces of equipment. These and and this is this is an approved part. It wasn't from the junk store. It was out of a brand new bag. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to be prepared, even if you think your your airplane is in tip top uh, mechanical condition. Because we know that mechanical pieces do fail. I mean, they do even to to the experience you had, brand new pieces. So even people with newly overhauled engines or newly installed equipment should still prepare and train for uh, the possibility that one day that stuff fails. Uh, Absolutely. uh, Big lesson learned that I'm still overhauling. But what I learned from that experience, I take all this new hardware and I buy it, I buy extra. And then I sent it out for destructive testing to see if it goes to its rate of value. If I would have done that, if I would have done that on that overhaul, we would have found the flawed uh, rod end. So, Sean, uh, I want to go back to, to earlier in your story when you you said, you know, as soon as you realized that the rod had broken you pitched down and you were going through a thousand feet and you said it was that moment where you knew you had to take action, that, that there was something seriously wrong. Um, is there, is there something that you keep in the back of your mind, like a threshold for, for when you know at this point, you know, I'm going to have to bail out or, or I'm going to have to take serious action. This is now a significant emergency. So are you asking Kristen, like, is a thousand feet a magic number? Is that, is that yeah. what you're asking? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, a thousand feet is an awesome number. I can bail out of an airplane spinning towards the ground at a thousand feet. It takes 1.74 seconds at 120 miles an hour for a parachute to open, so that's less than 400 feet. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, thousand feet is a great number. Um, but to answer that other question is, I took reactive actions immediately. Okay, mm-hmm. besides the initial sensory overload, I know I don't know how long that was, but the next thing I, I see is the nose straight down, and I took reactive actions with the um, the elevator trim tab. There's a little bar on the side that connects it, and uh, and I just pulled that up, and I waited because at 500 feet, 600 feet, 700 feet, I could not survive jumping out of the airplane. When I got through a thousand feet, I said, "Okay, yeah, I have a chance to live. I have a chance to live." 
And, and um, you know, there's been guys who've jumped out of an airplane from 500 feet and they survived just recently. And so um, you have to, you know, <laughs> Bob, Bob Hoover has so many, he's taught me so much. Sean, uh, you got to fly it as far into the wreck as you can. And if you do that, <laughs> You're going to survive, most likely survive. I, mean, I learned so many lessons from this guy. <laughs> and um, you, you just don't give up. You know, flying, flying is, um, we take a risk when we go flying. There is risk there. So you always have to be aware of options if something goes wrong. And even if it's a type, Bob Hoover told me a story when he, when he was flying his wife, Colleen, on their first date. He, he, he had a steerman he just bought for $300. And he could have, or 500 bucks, and he could have bought a P51 Mustang for cheaper, but he couldn't afford the gas. So he bought a steerman. He took Colleen flying, and the engine quit. And he was, he was, he was in Ohio. The engine quit, and he flew it between two sets of trees and tore the wings off. And he had to go in there, and he thought he killed his wife. There's Colleen in the bottom, just cussing him out <laughs> and, and saying, I'm never going. But he didn't give up. He, he flew it between the trees. I mean, so you just got to, when you're in a, a flying machine, you just don't let panic take over and, and, and you have to react. And so, so luck comes to the one most prepared. Preparation is everything, mm-hmm. everything in terms of pre-flight, in terms of how you're flying over those mountains, in terms of what, how to mitigate the risk all the possible risks. And the more experience you have in flying, the more exposure you have. And it's all about the exposure. Yeah. You know, on that note, so you're just going through the different steps to prepare ultimately for ditching the aircraft. And what stuck out to me was how cognizant you were of the placement of the aircraft and the people on the ground. And it wasn't just, well, I'm out, you know, this is, this is going to land somewhere, but at least I'll be able to, you know, to hop out of this thing. So, um, so that was pretty significant too. In addition to everything else going through your mind. If that would have happened, if that would have happened at an air show, there's a question I have to ask myself. Do I die or do I put people at risk? And that's a big question. Um, that's a very, very big question. Um, you keep, I have a responsibility as a, as a professional aviator to never put the public safety at risk. So um, that's a big, big darn question. And um, hopefully, hopefully if that ever happened to me again, I would make the correct decision to never jeopardize public safety. You can't do that. This is, you know, I've spent my entire life to throw audiences I spent my entire life to inspire audience and to give them joy. If I hurt myself in front of the audience, I traumatize them and all my life's work has been wasted. If, if I ever thought I put somebody on the ground at risk, I, I, I destroyed my life's work as well mm-hmm. because um, we as aviators have, have a responsibility to uphold the standard of excellence because people truly look up to us. They truly think that we're larger than life characters. People are, are so amazed these airplanes fly. I'm still so amazed that airplanes fly. Um, and so we do, all of us as aviators, have a huge 
obligation to be excellent. We have a huge obligation to be reverent that we have the privilege to fly. And, and that means we communicate with each other. I mean, we as aviators, if somebody's being reckless at the airport, don't turn them in. Try to fix them first. Try to mentor them first and saying we have a responsibility. And, and, and I really try hard. Um, I strive to lead by example. Um, I'm never doing low buzz passes. Um, when I go to work, I work in the arena. But when, I, when I'm flying my, my flying machines across the country, I'm not showing off because that, lead, that gives a bad example. You know, Sean, that whole self-policing aspect of aviation, I think, is so important. I've seen it through really good type clubs with Bonanzas or Navions or, you know, whatever, um, Super Cubs or whatever the, the, the type club might be, where the leaders in the club um, and, and really everybody it feels comfortable with having the right conversations with people where on the one hand, it's their airplane and they're flying within the rules. Then, then, then they have the, you know, the right, I guess, to fly their airplane, however they want. On the other hand, there's an obligation that you mentioned about your personal safety, your public safety, the public perception of general aviation. And so that notion that we will take the obligation to police ourselves and, and stand up and show leadership and have the right conversations with people that maybe don't realize the risk they're taking or the risk that they're inducing into general aviation in general, I think is such a critical component of the, of the culture of aviation. And I totally agree with you, boss. Um, you know, I, I'm so proud to call myself an aviator and, and there's, there's, we're, we're really kind of one big family, uh, from, and there's so many different facets of aviation and, and we're all in this together. We're all in this together because, um, at the end of the day, we, we, we not only have a responsibility, we get the joy and, and the um, pleasure of flying. And, and, and that exudes through our personalities as human beings. And, and we, we get back on the ground, we're kind of fired up. We're kind of, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, what, that's what defines us as human beings. And, and most aviators are pretty joyful human beings. And uh, that's what we need more of in this world is joyful human beings. <laughs> Hey, Sean, another piece of this that really comes out is um, knowing your airplane. I think it's so critical uh, that you know your airplane so that we had an earlier conversation with Lee Lauterbach, and he was talking us through a, a gear anomaly that he experienced in the P-51, and it wasn't in a checklist anywhere. And what came about was his maintenance crew and, and, and Lee, they just they knew the airplane. So can you talk to us in our audience a little bit about the importance of going beyond what's uh, just readily available in a checklist and understanding the steps of the checklist and what that actually happens. And then, and then how your airplane's put together. So if in the event you have this unknown situation and very little time to react, you have some sort of instincts on, on where to go and what to do. You know, currency is, is, is critical to excellence and execution. And you're absolutely right. Knowing every component and how your airplane works, how it's put together, the weaknesses of your airplane, every, there, is, there is no perfect airplane out there, okay? And so understanding the weak points of your airplane and going to that feathered edge to see where that is, um, to, see, to see where you, the envelope you can fly it in, understanding how to and practicing for those emergencies, practicing, um, you know, for power on engine failure, 
practicing for that is is just as critical as being current on doing your three takeoffs and landing in a certain amount of time is I, I love, at, we call them outs, I love practicing for what can go wrong. And, and when you do that, it doesn't go wrong. It, and, and, and when you do that, it's just part of the equation. Uh, when you're flying an air show, especially nowadays with all these wonderful ballistic, gyroscopic, tumbling, flipping maneuvers, when, 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 they, when they sometimes go wrong, you're falling out of the sky. But if you practice that and purposely get that airplane into that point and find its weak moments, then you'll understand the strengths of your, of your airplane as well, how to eloquently come out of that figure and keep moving on with your performance. And so if, whether I'm flying my Seneca 3 or I'm flying my Cub or I'm flying my T6 Texan, I want to know where that feathered edge is. I want to know if I have an emergency, what is the envelope so I can successfully manage that equation. So, Sean, can you um, talk us through when you had said that you, um, you know, you had trouble getting the nerve to, to move forward after this experience. Um, you know, obviously I, as, as Richard mentioned earlier, fly 172s. I'm, I'm a fairly newer private pilot. Um, and so I don't do quite the exciting flying that you do. Um, but I know that any pilot of any experience level can relate to having you know, a, a scary experience. And, and after that, just wondering what's going to happen next um, and, and getting that nerve to get back into the, into the airplane. So can you talk us through how you got that nerve back and continued on with your career? Uh, when I first started my flying, I was, and the reason now I'm an airshow pilot is because I, I conquered a fear. I would panic at the controls from stalling an airplane. I would not go beyond a 30-degree bank. And, and, and panic is, and, and fear is a huge, powerful emotion. And it, it, it will cripple you. It will turn your fear into a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I knew that I, I had to overcome this fear. And so I took an aerobatic course when I had 55 hours of flying time. And I, I was honest with my flight instructor. She was a little old lady named Amelia Reed out of San Jose, California, flying these junky old Citabrias. And I, I told her straight up, I'm scared to death of stalling an airplane. She says, well, let's start working on it. <laughs> and we started working on stalls. Then we started rolling it. Then we started looping it. And I fell so in love with taking, going into the third dimension and taking the airplane through its paces that this has been my life's work since 1973. This has been my life's work. I, I, I think about it all the time because I had the courage to face my fears and acknowledge them and get guidance and, and somebody opened the door for me to walk through and taught me how to do this with baby steps. And when somebody opens the door to you and gives you an opportunity to learn and they're right there with you, and, and you conquer that fear, you become powerful. I became so in love with what I was so afraid of. I became powerful. I became passionate. And, and I'm still that passionate about flying today as I was when I first started. That's many, many decades ago. Kristen, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question uh, because I think that's somebody, something all pilots can relate to. There's a certain part of your flying, whether it's 172s or at the level that Sean's performing, where 
you're, you know in your heart you're not that good at it. You know it kind of bothers you to do it, whether it's short field landings or soft field landings or, you know, whatever the case may be. And the only way to get through that is, is like Sean just described to us, to go out and get with an instructor and practice it and work through it so you can see that there's nothing to be afraid of or you know where the edges are. That's just a great question. Yeah, definitely. I, I did one aerobatic flight and I definitely was, once I could feel what the airplane could do and how I could control that, um, I felt much more comfortable. Hey, Sean, one, one more item that I'd like to just talk a little bit about it that I think is so important. And as I may have shared with you, I recently taught my son to fly. And as we talk through uh, experiences, he's uh, he just turned 18. Um, and as we talk through experiences, I would try to tell him that, you know, you, your enemy in these situations is panic and fear and emotion because it clouds your ability to think, it clouds your judgment. So, um, you know, step number one in any kind of situation is don't panic. And it's kind of a family joke we have now. My kids always tell me, okay, step one, don't panic. Um, so that... Um, you can then begin that rational thought. And you talked about that very clearly where after you had kind of gotten the emotion out of your mind, you said, you said your goodbyes, you kind of came into peace, then how clear your thinking was on the actions you needed to take. And so can you expand on that thinking a little bit? Well, first of all, I think you're in an emergency. You're always going to be sensorily overloaded. The more you expose yourself to all the components of, of your flying machine, the overload is, is, is not as great. I think all emergencies. So it, what I love about aerobatic flying is upset training, teaching pilots that it's okay to be upside down. And this is how you can react. Uh, if you ever get upset, you ever get it behind a, a jet liner and it flips you upside down and you've been there before you intuitively, you intuitively roll. You don't pull to, and tear the wings out. You intuitively roll. So exposing yourself to the, the, the feathered edge of all dynamics of your flying machine is going to allow you to have less of that overload and less of that panic. Yeah, that's great. Well, my goodness, what, what a story, Sean. I, I, can't, uh, I can't imagine it was, it was really um, enjoyable to sit and hear you talk about it and feel like we were in the cockpit with you as you initially had this airplane that was uncontrollable and then through your knowledge of the airplane, through your experience, and through your rational thinking, you, you regain control of the airplane and then make some rational decisions about what to do with it from there. Um, it's a fantastic story. Thank you for sharing it with us. Well, you know, I, I never want to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> you, could, you couldn't pay me a million bucks. You couldn't pay me 10 million bucks to do that again. I always have to ask and answer the question, though, do I have the nerve? to be in the arena. And I do that every single day. I'm very reverent about this opportunity I have. When I get into any flying machine, I want to be the most prepared I can with that. Um, you know, you mentioned Lee Lauterbach. I, um, I'm so honored to have the privilege of caretaking an AT6 Texan. And I'm a, you know, I have a high time tailwheel guy. I could have gone, gone and done a two hour checkout and taken the airplane across the country. But no, I found the best T6 instructor in the world, and he taught me everything about that flying machine. And he works for Lee Lauterbach at, at Stallion uh, 51. And I went away with skills that I can take with me now through the rest of my flying career and that AT6, AT6 Texan. So the point is, the point is, never leave a stone unturned 
to be better. And always, there's always somebody who has more knowledge than, than you. And so go search for that knowledge. Always be striving to, to be as excellent as you can be, understanding that, that by do, doing that, you're honoring this great thing we get to do, and that's called flight. You know, my, my passion is, is, is sharing this magic of flight. My passion is I, I've defined myself through my flying. I, I, I have everything a guy could wish for for having a flying career. And there's a, there's a wise old man told me one time, it doesn't matter how rich you are, it doesn't matter how famous you are, you're not relevant unless you're given back. And uh, I've had some tremendous friends teach me those lessons. Um, you know, I, I, I'm the honored to be the chairman of the Young Eagles um, for a number of reasons. Is I love, I love taking kids flying. I love seeing the world through their eyes for the first time. I love our volunteers who go out and take these kids flying. They're they're just so important. So I, I, I'm glad to be on that team. Um, I come from a community that's an agricultural community. It's 72% Hispanic, and we have the one of the highest per capita kid on kid shooting in America. Um, and I think the metaphor of flight is so powerful that I took it to my community and I started a nonprofit called every kid can fly. We did, we were, my son and I started this as a payback. Uh, so my generous friend provided me with a 152 and we began this program uh, first, we started working with the probation department. We're working with these kids um, just to give them self-esteem. It was more of an after-school program. But it, it, we were learning a lot. Um, we didn't have a lot of success stories because it was after school. And finally, we met a principal of alternative education. When the superintendents blinked, we started a high school. And we have a high school now that is a year-long high school we have a hundred percent graduation rate for alternative education in Monterey County, uh, and it's STEM-based. We have a 152 that I, I partnered with the Department of Education. It is now their their jewel of a program. It's only 14 kids in my high school, and we do one kid at a time. The last two years, uh, one of my kids who graduated was a valedictorian of all at, at the high school graduation for all of alternative education. And there's, remember, there's 1,400 kids in alternative education. 33% pass rate is the average in alternative education for, for the kids getting their diplomas. I have 100% pass rates. We take these kids to solo. And to see these kids, when they don't look at you in the eyes, when they first come in to this program, and see these kids gain self-esteem because somebody is giving them an opportunity to push their boundaries and somebody believes in them um, is just magnificent. I think it's the greatest contribution that I'll ever be able to give to aviation is to change lives one kid at a time. And we're doing it in Salinas, California. A month before Bob Hoover passed away, I said, Bob, no more trophies. We know you're, you know, you're on final approach. I want to rename my Every Kid Can Fly program for the Bob Hoover Academy. And he looked at me in the eyes. It was at his house. He looked me in the eyes and he goes, let's do this. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and, uh, I have, and we just, we just made a national uh, announcement to it. If you go to bobhooveracademy.org, you can see 
um, some of our success stories. And uh, I'm so proud of this. Once we get this template perfectly finished, I think we're another year away, I'll take it to other communities because it's relevant. It is magnificent. Um, so the touch point's a little bit deeper than Young Eagles program. Two of my kids have graduated, and now they're in A&P schools. My goal is not to produce pilots. My, my goal is to allow these kids to redefine themselves as human beings and be productive members of the community using the metaphor of flight. And, I mean, I, I just wish – Every person in the world would try this once <laughs> because it will change their life. <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, thank you for sharing that with us. It's meaningful that you named it the Bob Hoover Academy, too. That, that's really cool. Oh, and, and the applications of it, it's, it, we're just getting started. I mean, this is, I'm utilizing all my resources. I'm utilizing my AOPA resources. I'm utilizing the EAA's resources. And so I'm not trying to <laughs> invent this myself. I'm, I'm getting all my knowledge and the resources that me as an AOPA member, uh, that's part of the benefits, you know. <laughs> so I'm using you guys for helping me out a lot. So don't, don't think you know, I'm doing this on my Glad own. Glad to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Well, thanks, Sean. Thank, thanks so much for your time and sharing that story. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. You take care, boss. Really nice to meet you. Uh, and, and thanks so much for your questions. And, uh, and we'll see you somewhere. And God bless America. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Wow, Kristen, what an intense story. Can you imagine that 10 feet off the deck at 300 miles an hour and snap? Uh, I cannot imagine that. Um, but... You know, Sean really brought us into the cockpit with him in that story, and we really felt uh, just all the different emotions that he was feeling at that time as he walked us through that. Yeah, so a couple lessons come out of, came out of that. Let, let's review them for our audience. So the first one that, that stuck out to me is, did you notice at the very beginning of the story, he was talking about how much he practiced that routine. I mean, here's a world aerobatic champion, and he's performing in front of you know, typical public like us. And we, we don't, it's very hard to distinguish between world-class aerobatics and very good aerobatics. Mm -hmm. But his standard was so high that he was practicing that routine a lot and in fact stopped en route so he could practice the routine even further when the incident happened. Yeah, definitely. And and with that, um, just the, the preparation that he puts into uh, every single flight, he's not complacent. Um, you can tell he's a very detail-oriented pilot. And, um, you know, he said he left no stone unturned. So any doubts in his mind, um, you know, he would definitely clear those up before any flight and go into it knowing that he was as prepared as he could possibly be. Yeah. And then it's such a great scenario where the rational thought, how you need to move emotion out of your mind anytime there's tense situations so that you can think and act clearly and logically. And that's something I certainly took away from that is when something happens when you're flying, whether the weather goes uh, worse than you thought it was, or um, maybe your engine's running rough or whatever might be the case, you know, the first thing is get that clear thinking in your mind so you can develop a plan of action. Yeah, and, and it's uh, much easier to do that when you know your airplane as much or as well as he does. Um, he knows how far he can push it. Um, he knows what it can do. And uh, and that way he can figure out, you know, this is the point where this is the point of no return. This is I have to take action now. I've done everything I possibly can. Um, and I know what this airplane can do and what it can't. Yeah. 
And then, um, you know, it's so interesting to hear him talk about where he ended up in his career and where he started. And it started with he had a fear of going over like 30 degrees of bank or whatever it was. And so, but he wanted to be a pilot. So how did he overcome that? He went and took aerobatic training. So all of us have those weaknesses in our flying and those things we know we need to get better at so that when the time comes, we can rely on that skill. And the only way to do it is to go expose ourselves to it. So get an instructor or just go out in the airplane and practice it in a safe environment so that you kind of eliminate that, that fear. Yeah, and um, and also overcoming that fear um, when you are flying a new aircraft. And transition training is extremely important, um, whether you're transitioning up or down or sideways. Um, you know, he actually sought out um, the best T6 instructor that he could get, and um, you know, he made sure that he he knew that airplane. No, I I agree with you. Here here he is, one of the most accomplished pilots in the world. You know, 25 living legends of flight. And when he wants to go fly a new airplane, what does he do? He seeks out the very best training he could find to go to go transition himself. So pretty powerful statement about that. I, I agree with you. And um, really a final observation to me that I think is so important. And I've actually seen, you know, being part of the air show industry for, for a while, I really saw the self-policing that goes on behind the scenes. And it's really not just in the air show industry. I've seen it in really good type clubs where... Um, you know, it's incumbent upon us as pilots to make sure that we are keeping people within the fold. Because if we don't, then it'll obligate the, the feds to take action and to put more rules in place. And that really is the last thing that we want or that we need. We can police it ourselves when we see pilots or we see flying clubs or different environments we go in that are operating out of bounds. We kind of owe it to say something and to speak up. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a sign of integrity to be able to to recognize uh, issues that you're having um, or mistakes that you've made, and also be able to help your fellow pilots. So, Kristen, we've got a pretty exciting guest lined up for our next show, and a lot of people don't know that this guy's actually a very accomplished pilot. Oh, really? Can you drop us a hint? Yep, he's as smooth as you're flying. <laughs> That's pretty smooth. <laughs> If you would like to hear other episodes, share your thoughts on today's episode, or request to appear on our show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thank you for joining us. Fly safe.